Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energia Consulting, and joined the Oil and Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and check out all the other podcasts in the network and the new merchandise that's available. Maybe even pick up the Oil and Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter called Sunday Update. All the links are in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, Mark Munoz of Advanced Integrated Modeling. Hi, Mark. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, great. I get to read a a short synopsis of your bio here, and then then we'll get into our conversation. Mark Munoz is a reservoir simulation engineer project manager um, who's been developing innovative solutions and workflows. He's held positions of engineering fellow, manager of Latin American operations, manager of integrated studies, manager of simulation, and manager of reservoir engineering. Oh my gosh, all the good stuff, Mark. He's a course developer teaching classical engineering analyses, integrated studies, programming related to water, gas, chemical flooding, steam, and CO2. His experience includes advanced study integration, project management, reservoir simulation, and reservoir engineering. He founded Advanced Integrated Modeling in 2019. Before that, he worked for Devon Energy, ConocoPhillips, Oxy, NITEC, BP, and SLB, Slumberger, to name a few. Mark, wow, you've been around as long as I have. Well, actually... (laughs) To be fair, we knew each other when we were both young and had black hair instead of gray hair. So I'm, I'm delighted yeah. that you're here um, with us on I've the I've gotten podcast. older, but you haven't. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I knew I liked you for a reason. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, all of your work is, so you, you and I worked together in the early 80s uh, when we were both working at Elk Hills in Bakersfield. And uh, you were with SSI, Scientific Software Intercomp. Um, Tell us about your work as a modeler. Um, not all our energy and our listeners, though, are oil and gas subject matter experts. So before we get started, talk to us about reservoirs, what modeling and simulation means, and why we would want to model and simulate those reservoirs. Okay. Uh, yeah, we met uh, in the uh, 80s back at Elk Hills, and the interesting thing is all of my friends that I have right now that are my close friends all came from that assignment. So if it weren't for that assignment, I probably wouldn't have any friends, to be honest. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) uh, one way to explain uh, simulation and and why we do it, uh, you know, you've heard of people uh, in the news now and then they'll win the lottery and they'll say, oh, this guy won a billion dollars in the lottery. And then as they talk about it more, they'll say, you know what, uh, but he'll get $700 million, not a billion dollars. And and things like this for different reasons. Um, uh, the same is true in the oil business. 
In the oil business, we'll hear of a big find, and it'll be a billion-barrel oil field. Uh, out, out at Alk Hills, they have a billion-barrel uh, reservoir. But what you find is um, not even half of that uh, oil will be actually produced for various regions, reasons. Matter of fact, in, in many cases, maybe only 20% of that will, will actually be produced. Um, oil reservoirs, you know, friends of mine think that oil is in a tank under the ground. And it is not in a tank under the ground. If it were, uh, things would be a lot simpler. Uh, if you just pick up a piece of rock anywhere and you look at it and you see it has these really small pore spaces in it, uh, that's actually where the oil is. It's in these little tiny uh, pore spaces uh, that are in, in the rock. Uh, I'm a reservoir engineer, and the purpose of the reservoir engineer is to get that 20% higher. And so that's our entire uh, uh, purpose, what we're trying to do every day. Um, uh, you know, if, if I took a reservoir and if there's only 20% uh, being produced, it would be nice if I could actually look at that reservoir somehow and see where is the oil being left behind. Uh, you get up in the morning every day and you turn on the TV and you watch the news. And when you watch the news, you also watch the weather. And when you watch the weather, they'll show you like the track of a hurricane. They'll say our models are showing how this hurricane is tracking. And they also show you like the temperature uh, quite well, as a matter of fact. And they'll say, OK, you know, in Dallas, this is going to be the temperature. Houston, this is going to be the temperature. So what they do is they take all their data and they put it through a simulator. And that simulator then is, gives you this picture of what's actually going on, how the temperature is distributed throughout the U.S., our reservoir simulators are, are very similar, and that's what they do. If we take all the data from a reservoir and we put it into a simulator, now what we can do is we can see where is the oil being produced and where is the oil being left behind. Uh, a good example is when we, we worked out at Al Kills. Uh, I actually ended up back out at Al Kills in around 2003, 2004. Oh. And uh, there was a, uh, there is a billion barrel reservoir there, uh, and it had been producing since uh, 1917. So almost the turn of the century is when they found that reservoir and they started to produce it. When I was looking at Can it you around tell us which 2000, it it's the LLO4, I'm sorry, it's the shallow oil zone. Uh, reservoir. Oh, my uh, reservoir. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The That's Shell right. Oil Reservoir. Dead oil, though. Uh, it was dead oil. Uh, it was dead because they didn't do any uh, pressure maintenance in it, which is another thing you shouldn't really do. But what happened right. in that reservoir, I don't know if you know this, because in around 2004, when I was studying it, uh, I put the data into the simulator and uh, when this simulator showed me where's the oil that's still there, there was a large region that had not been produced at all. And when we looked at that region, we're like, okay, well, either there's something drastically wrong with the model or, or we have a big find actually in a reservoir oh that's been producing gosh. for almost a, almost 100 years. And, um, you know, people were a little skeptical or whatever, but... We finally got the courage to go ahead and drill it, and actually it was the best well in the field when we drilled that area. Absolutely. We drilled another well, one. Was it we as drilled expensive another one. To, 
Yeah, but it wouldn't yeah, that, have been that expensive. Tijuana was shallow, 900. That's why, Is that, that that's why, that's how we convince people, let's just drill it. Because we talked about it a lot and we're like, it's not that expensive to drill here. Let's just go ahead and drill it. And we ended up with a whole new development area uh, in that in the shallow oil zone. So again, it was the simulation though that came back and told me, you know, this is where uh, the oil is, and the way to get it out was, of course, we had to add new wells to it. So, yeah, yeah. So, Mark, just to um, put a fine point on it for people who really are not oil and gas, uh, even in oil and gas, um, a simulator is a computer. Uh, software, a, a computer environment, and we take um, the reservoir and we describe it mathematically and we put in all of the uh, physics and flow ca uh, calculations and functions so that uh, we can kind of simulate, pretend, that this is the reservoir, this is what it looks like. And there's a lot of assumptions in there, but based on your work and how it's come forward, um, we can really like find you know new oil, if you will. So, did I get it right about what a simulator is and model model is? Yes, yes. The the a simulator is is a mathematical description that, like you said, it describes the physics of uh, the oil flowing. Uh, what it does is it divides the reservoir into separate small blocks, and for each of those blocks, it says, okay. There was a certain amount of res uh, certain amount of oil when we found this reservoir, and now as we model how much is flowing in and out of that small element of the reservoir, uh, how much is left through time. It does this through times, again, just looking at how much is moving into that element and how much moves out. But it does it for every small element in the reservoir, and the mathematics then are are quite involved um, but but again that's all that's really done is is uh, it's, it's taking a an, an accounting it's sort of like your checkbook you know you have a certain amount of money in the bank you put a certain amount of money into your account and you take a certain amount of money out so how much is left and that's what we do with every small element within the reservoir we had a certain amount of, of oil in our account uh, how much oil moved into that area from into our account there from surrounding areas and how much did we take out either uh, to other areas or through a well and so we know then how much is left in, in that element. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, 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 I'm a reservoir engineer also and so I just, I just love that stuff although I'm not very good at simulation or modeling or those kinds of things and I tend to argue because I kind of, like I said, only the bit finds that I really want to validate um, those some of the assumptions that are made but but tell us how you got into you know, you know modeling and simulation and all of the above it, it, it's kind of um, you know I tell people a lot of my life is like by accident I ended up going to college by accident uh, my what? math and my chemistry <laughs> teacher sent me to college and said you have an appointment with the chemical engineering department if you want to go to college I had no idea I was even going to go to college and I had finished my math degree, and I, was, I had one last semester for my chemical engineering degree, and I just kept saying, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I mean, as a young kid, I, was, I had absolutely no idea. And I was working at the first of Denver Bank in downtown Denver, and I saw an ad where Scientific Software was looking for an engineering technician. And I thought, well, you know, what the heck, I'll apply because they, they weren't looking necessarily for uh, engineers. They were looking for something with a specific background. 
And so I applied for it. It was on a Friday. They called me later that afternoon and asked me if I could start Monday. And I started Monday. Uh, my, I would spend then, I would spend 13 years with scientific software, and everything was just one nice surprise after another, whether it's the people I met or the projects that I got to do. Uh, the very first project they put me on was uh, with actually their engineering manager. Uh, his name is Dr. Craig Van Kirk. I don't know if you know Dr. Craig Van Kirk. He was the head of the Colorado School of Mines for a long time there. Oh, and, uh, and he was so kind to me, and he showed me the mathematics of the simulator. And um, uh, I'd seen those same mathematics in my, in my college curriculum. And uh, then he also told me, he says, okay, so there was some mathematics. The simulator doesn't do what we want it to do, but we're going to trick the simulator into doing what we want it to do. And by knowing the mathematics, then we could figure out how to trick the simulator to do what we wanted to do. Uh, so he's a big name and such a nice guy. Uh, I started then doing uh, steam flooding which uh, a sm smaller number of reservoir engineers look at steam flooding, but also I started uh, doing simulation of combustion. So steam flooding is where you would go into a reservoir and to get the oil out, you'd uh, heat the, ho the oil up because it's, uh, it's too viscous to produce if you don't heat it. Um, in that same nature, that type of oil or whatever, uh, combustion is you'd actually go down hole and you'd actually light a fire and uh, to heat up the reservoir. And there are very few people that did that. Um, after doing that, I was then uh, sent to uh, Bakersfield to teach a thermal workshop that I taught for a number of years. And uh, the developer of the simulator, his name was Keith Coates. And Keith Coates is like probably the top name in reservoir simulation. Uh, he wrote all the good simulators of the day. I Even before I had met him, I had read every paper that he had ever written. So when I got to meet him, I was like, you know, like meeting your favorite baseball player or your yeah, favorite right. uh, football player or <laughs> whatever. I mean, I was just, <laughs> yeah, I was just in shock, you know, to, to be able to, to do that. Um, my entire career uh, went like that. I actually, scientific software, actually met my wife there. Uh, all oh. my best friends came from scientific software. Um, I, I, as you said, mentioned it was that time period that actually ended up out at Elk Hills. Uh, and I loved working at Elk Hills. I mean, working in California is such a great place because Elk Hills has light oil, and but also there's heavy oil in the area. There's a lot of different types of projects going on. So you get exposed to those different projects. And also, as coming from a consulting background, we get to uh, do projects of different uh, types and different types of reservoirs. Uh, a senior vice president of scientific software asked me if I wanted to join him with a small group because he was uh, opening the uh, ECL uh, office in uh, the Western Globe. And he said, Mark, I'd like for you to come. We have a simulator. We'd like to move it into, uh, you know, to be number one simulator. At that time, it wasn't really well known at all. Uh, he said, you're going to be in charge of anything that has to do with uh, software, the installations and stuff like this in the Western Globe. 
And there's only, wow. you know, and that's because there's there's nobody in the company. You know, somebody has to be responsible for something. And so that's what I was. And uh, the simulator was the Eclipse simulator, which uh, later I'll, I'll mention too, because uh, I actually ended up there. That's a name uh, we all know. It, yeah, it it became the number one simulator, and actually, it was the simulator that everybody tried to uh, mimic, uh, probably even till today, to be honest. And I got to meet the developers of that simulator. They were actually working out of England. Very very smart wow. people, you know. And as time went on, you know, all I did is meet smart people. I got to do the first coal bed methane simulation done with the finite difference simulator. Uh, I got to do um, uh, uh, an environmental cleanup uh, where if you did a chemical spill, how you would clean it up again with the finite difference simulator. So like I said, there were great projects coming in. Those are things we take for granted, right? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean, these are things that are not typical uh, that you would do with a simulator. Or even that when they asked me to do the chemical cleanup, nobody even thought you could do it, to be honest. Right, um, right. Then I got to teach a very, well, um, I think, yeah, I think so. But it's because of that background of the, the consulting type background, you know, you're free to do different things. They sent me then to do a, a very unique um, uh, class uh, or training. I was training in Venezuela. And the thing that was unique about this class is it wasn't a one-hour class, it wasn't a one-day class, it was a six-month class. So the class lasted from September 1st till March 31st, and uh, I had the same students through that entire six-month period, and I did that for 10 years. So every year I'd have a different set of students in, uh, in Venezuela, and I spend most of my time down in Venezuela uh, working with these students, and again, uh, very interesting work, very interesting people. So I kind of fell into this field, but uh, I, I mean, it was so exciting to me, and I wanted to be there. That I, I, why would I leave? You know, so right, right, um, right. So, so did you teach in English or teach in, in Spanish? You know, it's kind of crazy because my my last name's Munoz. And uh, the president of the company came down, and people were telling me, they're like, well, uh, you must really be somebody special because the president of, this, of the company is coming down. He wants to meet you. And the first thing he told me was, I wanted to meet the only Munoz who doesn't speak Spanish. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, but over 10 years, you get to where you can speak Spanish, you know, at least Good enough uh, to get you. by and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So. Yeah, can I pause on that for half a second? Is like, um, you know, even though our cultural background is Hispanic, we don't, you know, we we don't always all get to learn that language at home. Um, I'm, you know, from California, but my parents are from El Paso, Texas, and all my cousins in El Paso are beautifully bilingual. But in California, we didn't we didn't speak Spanish at home. And so I grew up having to yeah. study in a school. I was part of the um, Latin American team for the Department of Energy for oil and gas. And I was studying foreign service tapes. And I would go and I'd travel in Latin America. And um, we'd, I'd do my very best to speak in Spanish. And then eventually they'd say, OK, Elena, we're going to switch to English now. <laughs> and all yeah. the reservoir terms were 
English anyway, so it was kind of it was okay. But I mean, that is a phenomenon. I think that that uh, it's unfortunate, but there you go. You know, what are you going to do? So anyway, well, I I became (laughs) I became the uh, manager of Latin American operations, and uh, Schlumberger bought UCL, and. And uh, they made me the manager of Latin American operations. So I was a Munoz who was not fluent in Spanish, but I was the manager of Latin American operations. And pretty much all the work that my group did was from South America. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so ECL. So then where'd you go? What'd you do? Uh, so then, after I and then I would spend 13 years from ECL uh, Schlumberger, and, uh, and and then what I did was I ended up. That's when I ended up with uh, Oxy back in Bakersfield again, and again I just loved it out there, uh, yeah. working out at Elk Hills um, and in the Shell Oil Zone. Uh, I mean, never a lot of wells in that uh, in that reservoir. Um, my parents actually got ill back here in Denver. And so um, I told Oxy, I said, you know what, I, I don't want to leave, but my parents are sick and I feel I have to go home. But keep me in mind because I'd like to actually come back to Alk Hills again. And uh, so they said, okay, that's fine. And they would still keep me busy for like the next five years. Uh, but uh, kindly, uh, uh, the head of NITEC in here in Denver uh, he's gave me a job. So he said, you know, why don't you, I've known him also from scientific software, and he said, why don't you come and, uh, you know, uh, work with us here in the office. And uh, that's Chad Osgen, who owns uh, Night Tech. Um, uh, he, so I worked through his office, but I actually did work on the uh, shallow oil zone probably for another three years. And then Oxy was trying to get into um, United, uh, the UAE, okay, uh, United Arab Emirates. And to do that, they had to show that they could run a big project on a reservoir that they were doing. And they hired me then to be the uh, uh, technical project manager on it. And I guess it went well because Oxy got the contract and and last I heard, I think they think they scaled back that office here just a year or two ago. But ever since uh, about 20, 2009, they got into that uh, that area. I ended up going back to Oxy, but they put me in Houston, and uh, and I was doing uh, 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 Makaisna, which is a large thermal uh, operation in Oman. I did a large project in uh, in Qatar. Uh, so I was doing mainly overseas things when I went back to Oxy in, uh, in Houston. Uh, then ConocoPhillips uh, lured me away, and I went to work for ConocoPhillips there in Houston. And I was doing uh, uh, Ecofisk, which is in the North Sea, which is a very, very uh, interesting uh, uh, reservoir. So I did some unconventional work for them. Conic was doing some really great things in an unconventional area. And I also did what's called uh, steam-assisted uh, gravity drainage in Canada, uh, where I was essentially advisor on, on that type of project. So, so your and, resume uh, probably, really tracks the changes in the industry over time. Tell us about how simulation and modeling has changed over time and some of the um, kind of the 
various tools you've been uh, developing or been part of development thereof or used? Yeah, I you mean, know, uh, when up, I look at how, when I, when I uh, talk about how simulation has changed, what I like to do is, is divide it into three, I think, major periods, okay? One is at the very beginning we were working on what are called conventional reservoirs. And these are uh, reservoirs that are uh, actually uh, relatively easier to produce. You can put a well in it and, and produce it without fracking the well. Uh, we would implement uh, things like water flooding. Oil floats on water, so if you inject water underneath the, the oil and put your wells up on top where the oil is, you can actually float that oil up to the, up to the well. Uh, or you can put gas on top and, and, and uh, put the, make the oil go down instead of up. Um, you know, we did a lot of uh, s steam injection, things like this in conventional uh, reservoirs. Um, uh, these were typically large, larger models. Uh, normally they would be of the entire field. Uh, most studies that I was involved with uh, as a consultant in particular, well, even at Elk Hills with the shallow oils, they're like two-year-long uh, studies. And part of the reason, though, is in those days, a lot of the data was uh, on paper. So a lot of the beginning of the right. project was actually just to put everything in a digital form. Um, but we would uh, essentially uh, uh, create some pretty decent models and, uh, and get a pretty good picture as to what was going on. Where was the oil left, and then where would we then place uh, new wells, or uh, complete old, old wells, and or what other processes we wanted to actually implement there to get as much oil out as possible? Because again, as a reservoir engineer, that's what that's our whole uh, our whole life. Uh, when we were going along, <laughs> yep, ultimate recovery, and of course, uh, what you can produce also affects the. What you, if you wanted to sell that reservoir for, what that reservoir is worth? Because if you have have a reservoir but it's full of oil, you can't produce. Then, you know, who wants to really buy that unless they have some new ideas? And actually, there have been some genius ideas along that line too. Uh, but yeah. along that line, what happened is, uh, I was remember I was at a um, uh, simulation uh, conference. And they had the expert panel on the simulation conference. And there they said, you know what, we need to just stop simulating. We need to stop building models because the models are, are no good. They said the models that we build, uh, that we get mainly from geologists and geophysicists and petrophysicists, uh, one of the members was saying is, is just, you know, they're, they're just useless. And uh, I've heard, I'd heard that comment from people in the industry before and I started thinking you know because we'd had a lot of success but I kind of started thinking you know where does this come from where does this idea come from and I started thinking you know it doesn't come from the quality of the personnel because the people that are doing this work they're, they're top-notch I mean they're they're the smartest geologist the smartest geophysicist you know that that you could actually get um, and I started looking at studies and doing post-mortems on studies that were like that to see where did these things break or bust. And what I found is uh, it was because the engineer was not involved in the early uh, building of the model. Ah. So what happens is when you're building an early model, 
one of the first things that the geologists and geophysicists do is they look to see is that reservoir divided into sub-reservoirs. Because if it's divided, you need to address those subdivided reservoirs individually. If you start to water flood one uh, uh, small reservoir within it, uh, but it's not connected to another point or another uh, sub-reservoir, uh, the other sub-reservoir won't benefit from that uh, injection. So uh, typically a geologist would go in and they'll look at the well and they'll say, here are faults and these faults can be barriers. Here are some shales or some layers uh, within the reservoir that can be barriers uh, vertically. So these can uh, cause uh, you know, the reservoir to act like uh, separate tanks. They take that and they would right. typically work with a geophysicist and the geophysicist has uh, what they call seismic type data where they actually can get a picture of the entire reservoir. And so they can see the same faults, they can see the same uh, shale layers. And then those two, the geologist and the geophysicist, they tie their findings together and they actually can get a very, very good uh, detailed description of what these sub-reservoirs are. But what happens is when they give it over to the engineer and he's doing simulation, the engineer starts throwing data into there that the geologists and geophysicists didn't have access to. And right. now the engineer is saying, you know, I find another compartment here. I find another barrier here. So, you know, he'll look at uh, pressure levels in, in the reservoir. And he'll say, oh, well, you know, this part of the reservoir, we're really drawing the pressure down. But right next to it is a part of the reservoir that actually is almost at, uh, we haven't drawn it down at all. The pressure hasn't decreased at all, which means there has to be a barrier between them. Sometimes they'd look and they'd say, you know, the oil in one part of the reservoir is much different than the oil of another part of the reservoir. And to model it, you have to account for that. But for that to happen, there has to be a barrier between those, those two parts. They look at, a, there was a lot of things, the way uh, water would move through the reservoir. You know, uh, I told you before that uh, oil floats on water. Uh, they'll see places where it looks like the water is floating on the oil. But really what's happening is that water is going on top of a shale that's uh, go running through the reservoir. And, and it, so it looks like water is uh, going over the oil, but it's actually because it's going up uh, a barrier there and it, it's, the water isn't able to actually migrate down below that barrier. Uh, so what we did is, this is when we came into what uh, the second part, of, I would say, is, is fully integrated studies. And we actually founded this in, uh -huh. at Schlumberger, when Schlumberger, around the time Schlumberger had just bought us. Uh, like I said, we were investigating this. And, um, and so we said, from now on, every model we built, the engineer is going to be on board uh, day one, and he's going to be looking at all of these things, and he's going to be relaying these things to the geologist and the geophysicist. And now you have a consistency between all all the data, all the analyses, and what the result of that was is when the uh, model then came to the uh, engineer to do the simulation, he found that not only was it a much better model uh, and, not, and it was much better to simulate, but also the predictions were much, much better, okay? Because yeah. he's accounted for everything in, in these barriers in much more detail. Um, yeah. So that's the second so, so Mark, as I we think, get, major thing. So we move, 
Yeah. So if we moved fast forward to hydraulic fracturing, what you know, kind of how did how did that's it get the there? third. That's the ah, third okay. area. That's where we are now. You know, it, it yeah. wasn't long ago that the leading producers in the, in the industry were uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And now it's the United States. And the United States has accomplished that through uh, uh, unconventional reservoirs. And unconventional reservoirs are reservoirs that you have to frack, okay? So if you took an unconventional reservoir and you try to produce it, what happens is, I told you the oil is in those small pore spaces of rock. And when you look at that rock, you would say, you know, I don't even see how anything flows through it. Naturally, that's what happens in unconventional reservoirs is uh, the pores, the permeability, the ability of that oil to move is so low that it, it really doesn't move unless you frack that rock. Now, the thing about fracking, fracking rock and unconventionals is uh, we're talking about fluid flow through uh, fractures. Well, we've dealt with fluid flow through fractures f for decades. So we know how to model fluid flow through, through fractures, and there are different methods to do that. Uh, what we haven't, uh, or what the caveat is here is, uh, you, so you have a well, and you'll go in, and you'll frack that well, and wherever the fracks go, that's actually what you're going to produce, uh, the area you're going to produce. Um, and what we need to do, or the, the problem has been, is predicting where those fracks are. And number one, how, the, how are they initiated in the well? How do they propagate out through the reservoir? And then uh, how do they, when you produce them back, how do they behave? Because what happens is you'll go into a well and uh, you'll start injecting water and sand and you'll pressure up the rock until it breaks. But when it breaks, now you've created high pressure in those fractures, and the fractures are open. And so as you try to flow the fluid back, including the oil, the fractures start to collapse on you. And so we need to be able to model that. The, the other thing that's very important, though, is so if I take a well and I frack it, uh, you might get this uh, kind of uh, symmetric, uniform-type fracking along the well. Uh, these wells, by the way, are about two miles long. They're horizontal wells, right. and they, they extend uh, like two miles long. Uh, and so you might get maybe some uniform fracking, and, and that's not necessarily true either, but, uh, but let's say that is true along that well. Then what happens is you go to the next well uh, next to it and you start to frack it, and you'll find that the fracking in the second well doesn't look like anything in the first well. And not only that, but what happens is the first well, a lot of times, uh, is a very good producer, but the second well that you drill isn't as good, and many times it will have a, a detrimental effect on the first well that you produced because there's some interference then that occurred between the fracking process of the second well that's uh, impacting negatively the, the first well. Uh, what we find is when you look at fracks and how they actually propagate, they are affected by what other wells in that area have actually been fractured, but also have any of those wells in that area been produced. So production and, fra and fracturing of neighbor wells affect what happens in the well that you're fracturing uh, now. And uh, so 
that has to be considered when you're modeling it, and that has to be uh, considered through time, okay? It has to be done, uh, I will say, like in real time. Because what it really does is it's changing the stress, stresses that, the stresses that exist in the reservoir, and that's what's changing uh, the way that these fractures behave. So we have simulators, uh, again, you know, I mentioned before that we know how to do um, uh, model fractured reservoirs. NITEC actually was a leader in, in modeling fractured reservoirs th through time. Uh, in, in the past, when people would ask me, you know, well, where's a good company to go to to, to look at uh, uh, fractured reservoir, I tell them, you know, NITEC has got a lot of experience in that area. Uh, as far as having a simulator that will model this type of effects, uh, the same people who we talked about Eclipse, who built Eclipse, and it was, like I said, the number one simulator for a long time, they have built a simulator called 6X. And 6X is uh, very much like Eclipse in, in what it does in conventional type reservoirs, but also in unconventional reservoirs, and they have customized it to handle this fracturing process, to handle the stresses. So uh, when we go into unconventional reservoirs, again, what we need to do is we need to say, okay, want the simulator to tell me uh, where has the oil been produced and where is the oil being left? And a simulator like 6X then is the kind you need to say, yeah, here's where you're leaving oil and here's where it's being produced. And sometimes the oil that's being left is actually right along the well bore. So it's not even out into oh. the reservoir. It's because uh, you know you need to, uh, you haven't got a, a, a good frack, uh, like I said, not a uniform type fracking close to the well. Um, so this uh, then brings into, uh, we go into wells that, you know, we, we fracked them and we produced them uh, in the past, but we can go back into those same wells and refract those wells because there's areas where oil is left along the well. And then also uh, out into the reservoir, we can investigate, you know, how, are, uh, how is interference happening between wells? And so we get into what we call uh, in the industry, uh, what they call zipper fracking, uh, sort of like an alternate type drilling where you might skip a space between wells and things like this to try to get the uh, fracks when you frack to be more uniform and, uh, and to uh, have less impact on, on wells that are already drilled. So. Right. Oh, this is fascinating, Mark. I just love, I love talking with you about, uh, about all this, especially over the course of time that we've seen so many changes in the industry, and now it's so important for um, oil and gas to have its ultimate recovery increase, especially in unconventionals where uh, ultimate recovery kind of, the recovery factors are, are pretty low. And, and so I, I'm so grateful that you're, you're doing all this work. We're, we're out of time here, but um, is there anything you, you'd like to share that you didn't get to talk about here as we were going through this? Yeah, there's one last thing I just wanted to share, and that's uh, mainly uh, young people in our industry. I've always been a, an advocate of young yes. people in our industry and, and uh, things like this. You know, our, the young people that are coming out of the colleges, universities are so smart. You know, and I and uh, they ask me about our industry, and and I tell them, you know, this is a great industry. There's really good people. We're all for you. Um, uh, you know, I there was a young engineer that I met when I in my earlier days with Scientific Software, 
this engine, uh, young engineer was fresh out of the university and he told me, he said, uh, Mark, he said, you know what? I don't think I'm smart enough to be an engineer in this industry. And this guy was really smart. Okay. And, uh, that, uh, I kept, uh, I was friends with him for a long, well, I'm still friends with him, but for a long time, but probably after about 15 years or so, I had lost track of him and I Googled him and it said, uh, meet uh, a certain country, meet their newest billionaire. And that's oh. billionaire with a, with a B. He became oh, yeah. the CEO of a large oil company and he's, his title has been CEO ever since. Uh, oh when gosh. I was, when I was manager of Latin American operations for Schlumberger, I helped a, a couple of uh, another guys fresh out of uh, college, and uh, we did a study in a reservoir called Barrancas in Argentina, and uh, they were fresh out of school and everything. Uh, one of those that duo was uh, became the CEO of YPF. Uh, oh in South goodness. America, again, a large company. That's the, the I, national if I company can, of Argentina. Yeah, out at Al Kills, we had a, a young man. His name was Jeff, Jeff Wedgwood. I don't know if you remember Jeff, and he became a, a senior manager at BP. I, I met him in Kuwait, and what I tell young people is, uh, be patient. Actually, enjoy the ride, and you never know what the future holds for you. I have a feeling that you're going to be the CEO somewhere, but I do know what you're going to have is just a great, exciting and uh, career, and uh, I'm, I'm all for you. And if you ever need to talk to somebody, I'm always available. So uh, yeah. just give me a yeah. note, give me a holler. Oh, absolutely! And you know, we need we need uh, young people to um, have the confidence and the courage to not be too traumatized by college about the college career, you know, it's it's hard work, but that's okay, we're made for work, and um, and it can be fun, and then afterwards it opens up so many opportunities for you, and so, and of course we need, you know, smart young minds in the oil and gas sector as well. Energy is kind of the blood of the economy of worldwide, so we definitely need uh, young people coming. Yeah, they impress me every day. I'm sure that we have. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, yeah. Mark, I'm so happy that uh, we're able to connect here. I'm sorry, we're going to have to come back and get you to come back and talk to us more about um, unconventional modeling and unconventional because that's kind of, you know, where we are right now. But um, I so appreciate you um, being with us today. Um, Mark, Munoz, Mark Munoz of Advanced Integrated Modeling, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to the oil and gas uh, modeling and simulation arena. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank everyone for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.